Relatively Geeky presents Doomspeak. Welcome back to Doomspeak, the ongoing chronicle of the fantabulous exploits of the world's leading leader, the rightful ruler of Latveria himself, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And in this episode, we are revisiting a series we have covered a number of times over the years here as we discuss Doom 2099, issues 28 and 29. But first, a little feedback covering the last two episodes of Relatively Geeky Presents. First up, non-Doom content, the GalaxyCon episode. Sir, Dr. Ange enjoyed hearing the stories. I love that you've been bitten by the commission bug. I usually steer towards the bigger comic names for sketches, but there is part of me that wants to start supporting the smaller folks in Artist Alley just starting out. I usually target folks with a Supergirl history, or for folks with specific styles, where I think a Supergirl sketch would be cool. Kudos on your gets. Glad the Frakes interaction was great. Glad Grell was so cool, and I'm not surprised that the Sutherlands were so generous. And like you say, the last day of a con is where you can start haggling a bit with dealers they really want to sell. And I hope we run into each other at a con sometime soon, Ange. Yes and yes. Make it so, Doc. Make it so. Karen, from the Very Sweet Between the Pages blog, shared her own experience. Jonathan Frakes is one of the nicest people. A few years ago, I was at a TNG cast panel. Frakes came out at least 10 minutes beforehand, sat with the audience, mocked Riker, and just interacted with us all. I absolutely adore him. Great story, Karen. Thank you for sharing. Tom Panarese noted that there was a GalaxyCon coming to his region in March. I might go just to get Chris Claremont's signature. That's not a crazy idea, Tom, and keep us posted. Vic in Phoenix said that one bit from the episode really struck home with him. I have to say, Professor Allen, I've probably never identified so strongly with someone than I did when I heard your tale of woe trying to stand up after rummaging through comic boxes laid on the ground. As a man in his early 50s, Vic, I remember my early 50s, but it was a few years ago, actually. As a man in his early 50s, who has spent many an afternoon sitting on the hard floor of my LCS, peering into the exquisite possibilities of long boxes full of cheap comics, I, too, have experienced back and knee pain from my own same tortured efforts to stand afterwards. The struggle is real, Professor. Note, you are not alone, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. For that affirmation, Vic, I feel heard. I feel heard. And then, on last episode, when we talked about Doom's half of Astonishing Tales number one. And on that, Sir Martin of Grey said it was a great episode. I much prefer this period to the Doom 2099 stuff. I've never read a 2099 comic. They just didn't appeal. I have to say, Doom seemed to secretly admire Prince Rodolfo. Just look at that fake face he gave himself. And who can blame him? Rodolfo has the sharp good looks of all good unmarried European scions of royalty. (laughs) Doom seemed uncharacteristically self-doubting here, but why? his pranking of the U.S. president with a moon marble 
was masterful. Hail Doom, Mart. <laughs> Thank you. I also need to point out that later on Twitter, he added that this issue definitely represented Doom's peak. Doom's speak. Doom's peak. Martin, I love you. And we heard from Billy D from Magazines and Monsters. Hey, Prof. Great to hear you back and focused on Doomy. I like these issues quite a bit, the ones I have. The Doomsman is awesome. And when I saw these covers many years ago, I thought it was going to be an Egyptian story with Doom versus a mummy, maybe in Kantu, which would have been great. But you and Luke are now skating on some very thin ice with your Doctor Strange slander. It had to be said, Billy D. Well, thank you, Billy, and I appreciate you saying it, and not, you know, Matt Murdock or Jen Walter saying it. And from Dr. Ange, excellent coverage of an interesting-sounding story. As you say, a lot of territory could be covered in 10 pages back then. For me, the most intriguing part of the story is Doom copying his mind into the Doomsman. One, he's putting his mind and ideas into a being. He would never bend his knee to anyone, so why would he expect a perfect mental copy of himself to bend its knee to him. But two, I wonder if this was the beginning of the Doom 2099 idea of imprinted Dooms and clones. I will be interested to see where this story goes and if it mirrors 2099 as a possible homage. Well, the only thing I can say to that, Ange, is stay tuned. And from the aforementioned Sir Luke of the Upstate, Professor, wanted to send you a quick note about your coverage of Dr. Doom's first solo strip in the pages of Astonishing Tales. I confess, I read the Kazar stories from the early part of this run, but never the Doom ones, so I am eager to listen. The idea of a split feature title is a very Marvel concept, one more closely tied to the 60s than the 70s, but evidently given new life at this time. In addition to Astonishing Tales, Amazing Adventures, featuring the Inhumans and Black Widow, also debuted with a cover date of August 1970. I would suggest that these anthologies were an attempt to try out different strips before committing any to a full-length story. But that would suggest that Dr. Doom was not already worthy of such a title to himself, so that obviously must be incorrect. True, Luke. So true. Keen insight and logical deductions. It seems, by the short runs of each title in the split format, that Marvel had moved beyond the superhero anthology by the early 70s, a very telling turn, given that such titles made up a good portion of their 1960s output, with books like Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, and Strange Tales. Anyway, I've read some of the Kazar stories from Astonishing Tales via Marvel Masterworks Kazar Volume 1. Thank you, 99-cent sale on Amazon. So I'm eager to hear about the Doctor Doom portions of those issues. Plus, this will serve as the impetus for me to break out my copy of Essential Supervillain Team-Up, which conveniently reprints the Doctor Doom strips from Astonishing. Hail Doom, and thanks for the show. I remain your devoted listener, Sir Luke. Yes, Luke, you Break out that collection. And we heard from Ranger Gord from the Prayer of Justice podcast. Proud member of Food, Friends of Old Doom. Gord offered a mild correction 
to my claim that Astonishing Tales was Doom's first solo title. That's incorrect, Professor. Among Doom's original titles were the uncanny D-Men, the amazing Doctor Man, What If This Were a Doctor Doom comic, The Howling Commandos of Free Latveria, Doomerica Team-Up, and Latveria Flight. And yes, Doom has been benevolent in getting titles started that rightfully belong to him and then passing them on to the struggling super characters of Marvel. And you know, after receiving that missive from Gord, I checked Latveripedia. And the facts do indeed check out. Thank you, Ranger. Your service to the realm is again noted. Those last two episodes received combined social media love from the spiritual lens. Shane Kelly, Chris Willette, Matthew McKeegan, Derek, Derek WC, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, a World on Fire and All-Star Squadron podcast, Karen from Between the Pages, James from Karen, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, Clinton from Fan Film Fridays, Clinton, we are with you. Alex Najako, Sir Manuel Carmone of Truthful Comics, Tim Price, the Outcaster, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Jeremiah, the Notorious JJG, Chris Lydon, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Trekker Talk, hosted by the kind and lovely Sutherlands, The Telltale Mind, The Source Material Podcast, Chris from Professor Frenzy, It's a Show, My Comic Book Collection, Old School Ross, Rolando Gomez 71, Dave Elliott, and Ed Moore from the Newsprint Commando podcast. And well, seeing as we do have two issues to cover today, I make a motion that we play a promo and jump right into our coverage of Doom 2099, issues 28 and 29. Hearing no objection, the motion carries. An heroic legacy beginning in 1941 that spans time, space, and the whole of the multiverse. Journey along with the Knights of the Stars. Ted, David, and Jack. They along with Will Payton, Michael Thomas, Prince Gavin, Tom Kalor, and Courtney Whitmore. They take the mantle of Starman and continue his legacy. I invite you to listen as I journey through these adventures of all these heroes and the rest of the Starman family here on Opal City Confidential, a Starman podcast, coming February 2023. And we're back. The synopses we will run together, and then we'll do the discussion and analysis afterwards. Doom, 2099, issues 28 and 29 had cover dates, of April and May 1995, respectively. And thanks to Doom2099.com for helping with these synopses. The cover of 28 by Pat Broderick is certainly bold. It's a poster shot of Doom standing atop the U.S. Capitol holding a U.S. flag, and the Doom logo is extended downwards to cover about two-thirds of the cover. It's dramatic, and it does actually give us a few clues about what we can expect inside. The story inside is Borderlines, and was written by Warren Ellis, with the art chores continuing to fall to Pat Broderick and John Nyberg. We start with dramatic images from a revolution in Michalistan, a post-human net surfer in Colombia, and jets scrambling in Washington. 
all over the world, something black and terrible is stamping its hooves on the land. While at the Latverian Airport, Airstrip 3, Director Ironwine is called in to handle a situation. Someone has arrived from Colombia, and Doom is there to welcome him. Wire! Back to Latveria. And back, freshly back, from death. Ironwine is then called to the airport tower and told that the mercenary guild has taken control of Latverian air traffic, at which point the ships of the mercenary elite decloak and land. Doom and Wire ride on a newly designed clean power lifter. Developed by Doom, Doom asks Wire about the experience of death and thereafter. Wire reveals that he was with Paloma in cyberspace and that they were lovers. That I was correct, Doom says, stating the obvious. Resurrected, your consciousness exists simultaneously in cyberspace and the real world. Doom plans to make great use of Wire here in his new world. Another net glider, Indigo, arrives, claiming to be among the team that brought Wire back. And then he attacks her, but Doom stuns Wire, still considering him to be a potential asset. In cyberspace, the directors of Angel's Breath, the American megacorp that owns Mikelistan and its people, meet. Just think of it as a Zoom meeting, really. And they decide to do to Mikelistan what the narco-presidente did to Bogota. This has all been eavesdropped on by Communion Jack. Indigo brings him back to the real world, and Doom assigns her, Indigo, to attend to the world board. There, we learn that the Mikelistan mob has executed their former leader, Radescu. This is a reference to the final fate of communist dictator Nicolae Ceausescu at the hands of the Romanians after the fall of the Berlin Wall. We also learn that the U.S. Senate is where megacorp representatives vie for power and expansion under the arbitration of the quote-unquote president. War powers paperwork has been filed. Aboard the Libera Cielo floating platform, Nekruma, leader of Wakanda's Panther's Rage, arrives and offers his and his troops loyalty to doom, so long as the money lasts. And a final ally arrives, the skinny, green-haired mutant activist named Morphine Summers, because 1990s. Morphine is wearing a t-shirt with the image of Charles Xavier. I knew him, Doom reports. He embodied the most worthy traits of humanity. Notwithstanding the flaws of his thinking, I still feel privileged to have spoken with such a man. Morphine demonstrates his power, superannuation. He touches a chair and it crumbles to dust, having instantly aged 25,000 years. And then, we get the breaking news. Angel's breath planes are above the land of Mikelistan, doing what the narco-presidente did to Bogota, blanketing the whole place in necrotoxins, reducing the populace to a protein-rich sludge leaving all technology and production materials intact. Fortune enters and is shocked when Doom reveals that he instigated the McAllistan Revolution. But she is quickly on the defensive because we learn that she, Fortune, Doom's tarot-reading advisor, offered her services to the woman known as Neon Angel in return for the restoration of her mad brother, Kaz. I am Doom, 
Latveria holds no secrets from me. Doom weighs whether he can leave Latveria in her hands, and he does so because he has work to do across the pond. Nakruma, Sharp Blue, Indigo, and Morphine will be Doom's black cabinet in his plan to save America from itself. When asked what that goal actually means and how he's going to accomplish it, in a glorious splash on the final page, Doom answers simply, by taking it over. Issue 28 ends with a quote from Mikhail Bakunin, reflecting humanity's two precious faculties, the power to think and the desire to rebel. To be continued in issue 29, the cover of which is again by Broderick, and is a wraparound affair showing an air battle taking place near Mount Rushmore putting at risk the famous sculptures of the five great American leaders, Washington, Lincoln, Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Doom. This cover also contains a special logo, One Nation Under Doom. Again, the vibe of what is in this comic is communicated perfectly. On the inside front cover, we see a house ad made up of a larger version of that One Nation Under Doom logo and the message. Find out your place in 2099's New World Order. The story, American Caesar, comes from the same creative team of Ellis, Broderick, and Nyberg. We start by having to flip the page 90 degrees, like we're looking at a centerfold, as the first full pages are a two-page spread that is laid out in that direction, and it explains Doom's plan for his great leap forward. Now here's the thing, as good as Doom is at branding, I don't think that's what I would have gone with. But I think I understand what Warren Ellis was getting at, uh, perhaps. Because the Great Leap Forward was a plan implemented by communist leader Mao Zedong in China in the late 1950s. The goal of which was to turn the country from an old-timey agrarian farm-based society to a modern industrial one in just five years. The results were catastrophic to the people of China and the environment. Entire forests were stripped, which led directly to the deaths of more than two million people when the Yellow River flooded. Officially, China puts the death toll from the entirety of the Great Leap Forward at 14 million, while most historians and scholars believe the death toll to be anywhere between 20 and 48 million. Starvation, mostly. The Great Five-Year Plan was scrapped after three. But back to Doom's plan, the main goal of which is to cut off the U.S. Senate and take over the White House. Over the years, the presidency has become powerless, unnecessary. It's the Senate, bought and paid for by the megacorps, that holds the power. Sharp Blue thanks Doom for giving her mercenary elite troops a cause they can believe in. Finally. And in the closest thing we have to a crossover... She warns her troops that superhumans such as Spider-Man, Hulk, and others may interfere. Spoilers, at least in this issue, they don't. Doom rejects her characterization of him as a cold dictator with imperialist tendencies. 
which, yes, is a bit strong. Doom corrects her in his kind and gentle style. I'm a revolutionary. I have passion. And as the fleet departs, Fortune, back in Latveria, receives, again, a kind and thoughtful message from Doom that he believes in her and trusts her without question. And he ends the note with a bit of tenderness. Should you again consider betraying me, as you did to the Neon Angel, consider Doom stands forever, only a gunshot away from you. Oh, such a pussycat, what a softy. Aboard the Libera Cielo Indigo Eschen preps the Cyberdrive Cadre the first organized team of net gliders. No one expects us. Observing the net gliders' entrance into cyberspace are Paloma and Wire. Wire asks why she changed the properties of cyberspace. Why now, when gliders' archetype reach de-resolution, it kills them in the real world. Paloma's answer is simple. Because I can. Inside the Panther's Rage strike vehicle, Nakruma prepares his troops, Zandra included. Unlike the mercenaries, the Wakandan's motivation is reputation. If we fail, Wakanda and our queen lose face. Washington, D.C. To one side, the light-eating black box of the Senate. To the other, the blinding white of the Angel's Breath corporate central office. This is doom addressing all points. It begins. And attacks are launched in both real space and cyberspace. Shortly thereafter, Doom appears on TV and announces that he is claiming the presidency of these fractured states as his own. I invest myself as president by right of revolution. All presidential powers gifted by the Constitution are hereby reactivated. The Senate, empowered to veto, are in agreement, as proven by their silence. Now look, I'm not really here to quibble, but I should point out, just for historical accuracy, that in a technical sense, he killed all the senators, so they really can't veto this? I mean, I'm not sure how... I mean, I, yes, let's just give him a chance, okay? All police forces are merged into a single service, which he calls a shield. Their first job is to arrest all heads of megacorps and transnats. After that, they'll need to enforce the martial law. Nkrumah congratulates Doom's shock troops. The Americans never really found their feet. His troops join Doom's as they all approach the White House. Alone, Doom nears the Oval Office. It is a token of my serenity that I gave the creature in this room a choice. I'm still mildly shocked at the bravery of his decision. That brave decision made by the now former U.S. president was to take his own life before a doom arrived on the scene. I inhale blood and smoke, a revolutionary at the windows of heaven. And on the last page, we see Doom look out the windows of the White House, and we read a quote from Joseph de Mestre. Every country has the government it deserves. The End Well now, that was quite a story, wasn't it? We do need to talk about politics and comic books and some of my feelings on how I prefer such things to be covered. But 
let's do the small stuff first. And we start with the covers, which I said I enjoyed. I recognize that one possible complaint is that they do not reflect exact actions that take place in the issue. In 28, Doom does not actually stand atop the U.S. Capitol. And in 29, Doom's face, unfortunately, is not actually etched into Mount Rushmore. So, readers who want their covers to reflect an exact scene, an exact moment from the issue, these could be a disappointment. But I would argue that although the covers don't reflect actual action in the comic, they do certainly represent the themes of each issue. So they work for me, but of course, your mileage may vary. And there's one thing that Warren Ellis is doing here that I really like. And in a sense, it's kind of old-fashioned in terms of comic books. Because let's be honest, these days, after John Francis Moore's run ended on this title after two years, Warren Ellis would have been given a new number one. This would be the One Nation Under Doom 2099 limited series or something. And because in our hypothetical, it would be a new series, a new volume, the modern version of Warren Ellis would not feel a need to continue some elements from the prior run. But here, 1993, 1994, at this point in time, picking up a title mid-run, even though Ellis is certainly, as we can tell, taking this in a totally different direction, he feels a professional responsibility to reach back into the Moore era to make reference to characters and events, to show us that he understands that he is caretaking an ongoing story, not just coming in to tell something totally disconnected. Now, these references are minor, almost insignificant, but I'm glad they're there. We have the Libera Cielo platform from the Fall of the Hammer storyline about 12 or 15 issues back. The characters Xandra and Paloma reappear, albeit for the last time in this title, but they are here, weaving just enough continuity between the two eras to work for me. Even the cyberspace construct of Duke Stratosphere is name-checked. And there is one point about Wire's return that I need to mention. When he first sees Doom... He asks, what do I call you? Victor? Eric? Nate? John? Doom replies that Doom will suffice. But those names that Wire comes up with are interesting. Victor, obviously. But Eric? Remember that Eric Cherney was one of the possible Doom identities from back in the Moore run, where the theme was, who exactly is this Doom? That was a nice callback. But the other two names that Wire asks about? I don't know, possible inside jokes? Nate? I don't know about that one, but maybe Nathan Richards? That one is just a guess, a total guess. But the last one he offers? John? I have no reason to believe what I'm about to say, but I certainly hope it's a reference to John Francis Moore, who was scripting Doom's exploits the last time Wire saw him. So let's slowly start to turn towards the politics, pointing out that in specifically and intentionally and obviously turning Doom into a political story, political allegory perhaps, Ellis felt the need to jettison one of the main elements of Dr. Doom's character from the very beginning. One of the things that makes him who he is. Because in Ellis's version, there is no reference at all to Doom's heritage of and history with the metaphysical, the magical, the sorcery. All that stuff is gone. 
And to me, if you're going to lose that much of Victor Von Doom's character, what you replace it with needs to be really, really good. This element, the, the downplaying of the mysticism, is, I believe, why the character Fortune gets neutered in this story, why she doesn't accompany Doom in his grand and glorious conquest of the U.S. of A. Because in the moron, Fortune was a right-hand woman. He sought her and her tarot for counsel and advice and wisdom. The cards were used as omens, as portents and foreshadowing. And I don't think Ellis had any use for any of that. In his version of Doom's Cabinet, there is no room for... I apologize for the language I'm about to use, but it is the way she was portrayed three decades ago. But I don't think Ellis had any use for, again, a warning, for a gypsy fortune teller. So he sidelined her. So Warren Ellis is obviously making huge changes here, a huge shift in tone and theme, but he is at least nodding to what has gone before. Even as in the case of Fortune, he's going to change it radically. He doesn't just ignore her and pretend the two years of stories before his arrival never took place. No, he doesn't ignore the elements of continuity that don't suit his new direction. He references them and writes into them and around them. I think it's done skillfully. And as I said, I don't think it's something that would be done or would even need to be considered these days, the way that modern comic series and runs and numbering and volumes operate. Okay, specifically to the politics, and again, I'm going to put off the spicy stuff for a few more minutes and talk first about the accuracy of what is being portrayed here. And there are a few problems. I'm not sure whether Ellis was being literal in his notion that the U.S. Senate circa 2099 only represented the megacorps, or if that was just an expression, like, have the corporations really, literally replaced the states? Or are the politicians just bought and paid for by corporations solely to do their bidding? Because those are different things, and it wasn't clear to me which he was going for. Now, there is a history in the U.S. of referring cynically to senators from certain states as representing the biggest business employer in that state. For a long time, the senators from the state of Washington, now that would be Democrats Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell, I believe, but senators from there would be jokingly called the senators from Microsoft. In Oregon, the phrase, the senator from Nike, has been used. I'm sure that historically, the ones from Michigan were dubbed the senators from GM. These days, I don't know, maybe we'd have Republican Marco Rubio as the senator from Disney World. My state recently elected J.D. Vance, who could be the senator from the bestsellers list. I don't know, Bernie Sanders, the senator from Ben and & Jerry's? And Pennsylvania just came very close to electing the senator from infomercials and spam email. So I'm not sure if Ellis is using that language in this sense, that the people are elected as always, but 100% represent the views of these megacorps, or whether the megacorps literally have seats in the Senate, that they have replaced the states. That was unclear. One thing that interested me was Ellis's contention that the Senate had stripped the presidency of its rightful power, and that what Doom was doing was simply restoring the appropriate constitutional authority of his office, clawing back power from the legislators. And I would disagree with that contention in a couple of ways, because the U.S. president is not a prime minister, at least as how the Constitution views it. 
As a matter of fact, in my opinion, Congresses of both parties have spent the last few decades willingly ceding their power to the president, pretending that they are members of a parliament, and it is frustrating. Congress is constitutionally intended to be the strongest branch, as I see it. But that has not been the case for a good number of Congresses. So I think that Ellis got the directional flow of where politics went incorrectly. Power has been flowing from the Senate, not towards it. And his solution to devolve power to doom as president, while obviously being a great idea that I fully support, I don't think it represents, as he terms it in the book, a restoration of constitutional power, but that would be a further departure therefrom. And Ellis also has a skewed vision of what the veto is, what veto power represents, because he has doom taking power unto himself, pointing out that the Senate has not vetoed that move, which makes it okay. Except even setting aside the fact that Doom just murdered the Senate, setting that aside, that's just not what a veto is, how a veto works. The Senate doesn't have the power to veto the president. It works the exact other way around. And I know, you have to streamline things for a 22-page comic, but I point out that Ellis only mentions two of the three branches of U.S. government, actually only one and a half of the three, because the House is not mentioned at all. But the egregious one is the complete ignoring of the Supreme Court. Again, maybe that's such a U.S. institution, that tripartite balance that Ellis didn't think it needed a mention. Sorry that I'm being so pedantic about this, but I am the exact right age to have every Schoolhouse Rock song bouncing around in my head at all times. So I know how a bill becomes a law, okay? And I won't, but I could. I could totally sing the preamble to the Constitution right now, but... I won't. You're welcome. But enough about all that. Let's finally get to the real topic about how politics are and have been handled in comic books. And yes, politics have always been part of comics, and I think everybody knows that. The vast majority of people who claim they don't want politics in their comics know that. Because that's not really what they mean. You don't need to interpret the word politics so literally. Because that's not the complaint. Because crime, vigilantes, cops, justice, war, mutant registration, the American way, it's all political content. Of course it is. Politics were in comics in 1938, in 1961, in 1993, and they are to this day. But I would submit that the way that politics have been handled has definitely changed. That, I imagine, is what people mean when they talk about not wanting politics in their comics. Comics have always been political. They've always had points of view. Ending every war book with the comment, make war no more, is a really strong point of view, a strong political statement. But what has changed is that these days, and I will broadly refer to the last 10 to 15 years or so as these days, or as modern comics. These days, they're not just political, they're partisan, actively partisan, and that's the difference. U.S. society, and from what I can tell, this is not a uniquely American phenomenon, but we've become much more partisan than we were in previous eras. I'm using partisan here to describe the ugliness, the mean-spiritedness 
of political discourse these days. And that includes political discourse in our entertainments and in our fandoms. So let's get back to this comic specifically as an example of what I mean. Because in addition to those factual quibbles that I had with Ellis that I mentioned previously, the overall theme of this story is not one I necessarily side with. I mean, except for the awesome Doom parts, of course. But I'm not dumb. This is a very anti-American comic, and I'm very anti-anti-American. Ellis and I, we see the world of policy and economics and politics, especially of the U.S. variety, in quite different ways. I bet if we each listed our top ten concerns or issues or problems that we had with society and politics, those lists would be quite different. There would be some overlap for sure, but our solutions for how to solve those problems would be completely different. I'm positive of that. However, and this is what's changed since comics like this came out 30 years ago. In these issues, I don't sense that Warren Ellis is being dismissive of me, that he hates me, that he doesn't want someone like me reading his book. Forgive the the double negative that's coming, but I don't get the feeling that he doesn't want me in the comic book community. I've never looked for comics to be full-throated supporters of what I view as the best social policies, economic principles, tax structure, law enforcement priorities, foreign policy. Never expected that. I've never needed that, which is good because I rarely got that. But from the time that I was reading comics, up until what I'm calling the modern age, I never got the idea that writers editors, publishers, didn't appreciate me, respect me and my views, that they didn't consider me the bad guy for positions I hold, things I say and believe, and worse, how I vote. With today's creators, today's industry, today's fandoms, that isn't always the case. Some of them, I do believe, view me and people like me as their enemy. And if you think of politics as war and someone as the enemy, you have the great luxury of not having to treat them well. Our friend Luke Giaconetti, Sir Luke, noted this in the Godzilla fandom and responded by making his show Earth Destruction Directive, a place where, as he says, all are welcome. We have stolen that phrase outright, and we use it on Dorkness to Light and on the Comics Reading Journal. That's what people mean, I think, when they say they don't like politics in their comics. It's that they don't like the unwelcoming partisan spirit of current politics in their comics. But from my own perspective, let me say, of course, creators and companies are completely free. They can create and produce stories however they see fit. They have their plans, their goals, their target audiences. There is a catastrophizing of politics in our era, that every election is the most important one ever, and that we're only one election away from, insert whatever the worst thing is that you can think of, And for people with a Flight 93 mindset, the stakes are so high. People who look at the world differently from you aren't opponents, but are enemies that need to be finally and fully defeated. In that setting, you end up with places that aren't tolerant of divergent views and generally aren't open to discussion and disagreement. Personally, if you and me agree on 8 out of 10 issues, I consider us 80% friends. But many places, in many settings, that would make me a 20% enemy. And if we're on a war footing, any type of enemy must be destroyed. A few years ago, one of the podcasts I listened to at the time literally said, this is not hyperbole, not exaggeration, not 
interpretation. Literally said that anyone who, and then they said a belief or action that is roughly held by, I don't know, 41 to 73% of the U.S. population. And they said that if you are that kind of person, in other words, if you're someone like me, I mean, literally, if you were me, they just didn't want you, didn't want me listening to their show anymore. And I did actually respect their wishes. Now, of course, most podcasts and most comic books aren't that blatant in their attitude toward folks on the other side of the aisle. But in some places, that certainly can be the message that's communicated, both subtly and overtly. I was at a con a few years back, and a panelist again said the quiet part out loud, that people like me don't have a place in the fandom. And they felt free to do that because they had driven almost all the people like me out of the fandom. There was no pushback because I may very well have been the only person in that audience to whom that comment applied. Now, fortunately, I don't need media, comics, movies, fandoms, whatever it is, to parrot back to me, my worldview, my priorities, my viewpoints. I'm confident enough in my views to not need that constant positive reinforcement. Oh, boy. I surely haven't said everything I have to say on the topic, but I think I have said enough. Thank you for sticking around, the few of you who have. Because this story is ongoing, and so we have not, for better or worse, talked for the last time about the political ideals of Doom 2099 and of Warren Ellis. And we will get back to this. We'll get back to President Doom in a few episodes. Now, for our next Doom Speak, we have to come back from the future and head back not to the present, but to go more than five decades into the past. That's right, we're heading back to the Doomsman story next, from Astonishing Tales Issues 2 and 3. Well, just the Doom parts. Obvi. If you have any feedback on this episode, either of these issues, Warren Ellis, political themes and comics, or anything related to our good doctor, the rightful ruler of Latveria, please do not hesitate to contact me. You can do that via email, relativelygeeky at gmail.com. There's a comment on our Facebook or blog post for this episode. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. All are welcome. Thanks for listening. Take care. And hail doom. Hail doom. Hail doom. Hail doom. Hail doom. Hail doom.